Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Um, today, I have a guest. Uh, he's a PhD. He's in a PhD program, um, and I kind of thought it would be fun to compare and contrast what a PsyD program versus a PhD program looks like. I know this is something that would have helped me when trying to decide um, what route to go. Uh, so I hope you enjoy. Um, my guest is uh, Zachary Bergson. So Zachary, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, thanks for having me. I, yeah. uh, I've been, I discovered your podcast on Spotify. I think the algorithm recommended it to me and I've enjoyed listening to all your interviews. So. Oh, good. Well, thank you. That's what I've, uh, you're the first person who's kind of, um, who I've kind of heard feedback from that especially just happened upon the podcast. So that's nice to see it's making its rounds. Yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I guess it kind of makes and podcasts about this topic. So mm. I guess it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. How, uh, would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in psychology? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, my route to psychology or clinical psychology, I think was a little bit circuitous compared to the average person that's in my program. Um, so I don't, I don't think I'm old, but I think, uh, the compared to the mean age of the people in my program, I'm probably like four, four years, five years older than the average person. So I'm 30 and I actually didn't take a single psychology course in undergrad. I studied public policy and really wanted to become a journalist. And I did that for a little bit doing like editorial side of journalism. And then I got into the tech side of journalism. I actually worked as a software engineer at the wall street journal. Oh, I made their, so I worked on their charting application that basically makes all the charts you see on their website and a lot of the charts you see in print. Okay. And so like professionally up until I got into my PhD program, didn't look like I, you know, I would end up doing what I'm doing right now, yeah. but I guess what got me into it was, so my, my Zadie, which is grandpa and in Yiddish, um, he is a clinical psychologist. He, uh, he went to NYU. So NYU doesn't have a clinical psychology program any, anymore, but, um, when he was there, that, that program existed. Um, and he, he's also a psychoanalyst and he's always been, he's like a, a very important person in my life. Um, you know, a very like intellectually curious man. And he, you know, he'd always talk about Freud and, um, you know, his, his work. And I found it to be interesting, but I honestly didn't really consider going into the field until I did some of my own psychotherapy work. Um, you know, I, I started going to psychotherapy in my like early mid twenties and I, I just got really into the whole process and I started doing a lot of, uh, reading in my free time. I read a lot of, um, Freud's works. I read a lot of things in general about psychotherapy. And I realized that I didn't 
I like journalism and I like technology, but the the impact that you have is I like working with people directly and I like seeing change happen and like having an impact in someone's life. And while those fields can be impactful, um, it's very, it's, it's abstracted away many levels. Um, so this felt like a good area for me to do. And I also really like doing research. So I get to use some of the programming skills that I picked up in my twenties uh, for my own research in my PhD program. So it's all kind of ended up uh, fitting in nicely journalism skills, also like just doing skills, yeah. very important. So it's all kind of fit together nicely, but it was not a straight path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, similar in some ways, I'm, I just turned 31. So I'm a little bit older than some of my peer group and one of my buddies here, he's a year above me, but he's getting ready to go on internship. But similar to you, he he worked in um, computer programming for like Boeing and stuff. And then he talks about, but he he has a love for people and a passion to help people. And he got into clinical psychology for that reason. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when it came time to for so PH, you mentioned you know your love of research. You like really like researching things um is that is that kind of that compared to with the id program being more clinical based um what was that process like yeah so i had a limitation in the sense that i had to stay in the new york area um it's where my wife is it's where my wife works and um so i had to stay in the new york area and I mean, luckily for me, there are a lot of options in the New York area. There are, I pro there's probably an equal amount of PsyD versus PhD. It might actually be more PsyD. Hmm. And I think what pushed me to not go down the PsyD route was because I really did want to have that strong research element. And I wanted to specifically work with a supervisor who either was uh into using more like advanced statistical modeling to uh get at, get at underlying constructs or a person that was interested in neuroscience hmm. which is another area that i had no training in whatsoever but i was very interested in it oh. and there happened to be a amazing supervisor at Yeshiva. Um, his name is Van Seaman that I'm working with now, who is a visual neuroscientist and, um, and kind of just like a math geek kind of too. <laughs> and he, I think, I think I wouldn't have gotten into the program if it wasn't for him seeing my like programming skills. Mm. Um, I think that's probably how I got in. So that's what push me to PhD, although I do consider myself to be more psychoanalytic and the PsyD programs in New York, not all, but especially the PsyD program at Yeshiva, there's a PhD and a PsyD at Yeshiva. Um, it's like way more psychoanalytic. Oh. So it wasn't like, it wasn't incredibly easy for me to make that decision, but I think it, at the end of the day, considering my interests, it allowed me more options, essentially. Mm. That makes sense. 
Um, and so with the PhD program, you mentioned the supervisor. Did you know of him before you applied? And did you already have the neuroscience type of interest before you applied? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the second part first. Um, I So before I did my PhD program, I got an MS in statistical methods pretty much at the the uh, the CUNY Graduate Center. And, and I did that like while I was working. So it was tough, but um, it was interesting because they kind of let me take whatever classes I wanted. And there was a few neuroscience classes that I got to take. And one of them was this class called the Neuroscience of Consciousness. And it was co-taught by a philosopher named Richard Brown, who has actually has a really good podcast called Consciousness Live. Okay. Um, and a fairly successful neuroscientist named Tony Rowe um, took that class and some other neuroscience classes, but that, that, that particular class made me just, it just really, uh, it drove home. It kind of like connected a lot of interests that I'd had throughout my whole life. Mm. And it made me want to not only look at psychology, but also some of the underlying biological mechanisms and mm. how the underlying biological mechanisms can then lead to like a phenomenological experience. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I didn't have any, I didn't, you know, my research in my master's program was with the developmental psychologist and I didn't really have any research to like, you know, show a supervisor who was mainly in the neuroscience field that I would be a good candidate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my, I'm very, I'm very grateful to Vance uh, for like, you know, giving me a chance despite on paper me not really having hmm. um, that much, uh, you know, stuff yeah. to back, back me up. Yeah. 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 And so did you know about him before you applied to the program? Um, I didn't know about him. I mean, I was researching programs and what I did at all the programs was I would, you know, pick out one lab that I was really interested in at the program that I'm in. They have the model where you apply to the program and you say what your preference and lab is, but you don't necessarily have to stick with that lab once you get there which i think not it's probably in the minority of clinical psychology phd programs but um that's what that's how my program was so i you know i picked out his lab um and i think i i don't think i even wrote to him beforehand i i was um <laughs> which i don't recommend i i was kind of split between a pure research PhD at the CUNY Graduate Center mm. with the with my my supervisor in my master's program um, and doing clinical and I had met with some other um, supervisors at different schools but I, I think I discovered Vance kind of late <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I discovered his lab maybe like three weeks before 
the application deadline. Oh. Um, and I just threw in and I just threw it in, yeah, in a application, not really thinking much of it because I felt like it was a stretch. Uh-huh. Um, and I got an interview. Well, wow. so I think I, you know, I got lucky that, you know, I didn't, my application didn't get, you know, sifted off of the, <laughs> the uh, stack. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, when you, you mentioned, you mentioned labs, is that, uh, you mean just like the lab where you do research, like a, a neural science lab and maybe, a another, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, is that- so we have at my program, I, I would say that's pretty normal for PhD programs. So my program, we have we have the visual neuroscience lab, which is the lab I'm in. Um, there is a multiple sclerosis lab. There is a um, addictions lab. There's a neuropsychology slash movement disorder lab, um, a lab that focuses on comorbidities between diabetes and mental health issues, comorbidities between asthma and mental health issues. So each of these uh, supervisors or faculty members basically have their own research projects that are often funded by, you know, million dollar NIH grants. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they'll, students will apply to work with those particular people and they usually stay at my program, some people switch, but they usually end up staying with the person that they initially started with. Oh, okay, that's that's cool. That's interesting. The correct me if I'm wrong, but with PhD, if you get accepted, is the schooling basically paid for throughout their, your your time? So it depends on the program. So so my program is only partially funded. Okay, and part of the reason why so there, yeah, so it's partially funded. But since each each supervisor has typically has access to grant money, mm-hmm. usually what happens is a lot of students will either like break even or they'll um, you know only be paying a little bit, and then we'll have like there there are like teaching positions that they offer us and give us like small stipends. So you know you end up in my program, you still end up taking out student loans, but it probably might be, I mean, it's definitely not more than a PsyD program. It's typically less. And then there are some, there are some PhD programs that are way more research focused. So an example of that is uh, Stony Brook University, Mm -hmm. um, which is out in Long Island. And that's like one of the top like clinical research programs. And all the students there get fully funded and but the the sort of the catch with that is that a lot of those students the the clinical training is it's not that they get bad clinical training at those programs it's just it's not emphasized as much Uh um so it's maybe more like 70 30 in favor of research or 60 40 in favor of research whereas Mm -hmm. my program the way that they talk about it it's more like 50 50. okay um so i think I guess like the more the more competitive PhD programs, mm-hmm. they're all competitive, but the really, really competitive ones are the ones that are fully funded and are like thought of as like clinical research per or like clinical science 
programs, whereas mine is a scientist practitioner model. Mm. Um, so there's a lot more emphasis on uh, clinical work than uh-huh. um, than the clinical science program. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I think I think mine. I don't. I might get this wrong, but so I go to Regent University in Virginia Beach, and I think we're considered practitioner scholar model, and um, it's probably like either either like eighty percent clinical, twenty percent research, or seventy thirty. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really it's really independent um, upon the individual, you can, you can be really involved with research and you can do a whole lot of research. Some, some of the people I know, they've gotten comments um, upon interviewing for internships saying like, wow, for a PsyD program, you've got a lot of research experience. And then others, they just basically do their dissertation and that's all the research they, they do. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, there are some people in my program where they are mainly clinical focus but a lot of the hoops that you have to jump through to get your phd require you to do the uh, more research than you would mm. in a id program just just by default uh-huh. um, and then there are some people that are way more research focused and um you know that's their that's their goal and a lot of times those people will stay the extra year mm. they'll that they'll stay the sixth year um, or like the fifth year before internship because they want to beef up their CV to get, mm. you know, all those competitive positions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What did, um, let's see, what did your, what was kind of like a, what's a summary of your first year? What did that look like? My first year, so I don't know what it's like inside. I'd be curious to hear what you say, but because my program is trying to do so much, they're trying to give you really good clinical training and also really good research training. In the first year, they really, really load you up with courses. Mm. And technically in your second semester, you start in our like university community clinic, but um, a lot of people don't get assigned patients until the summer between their first and second year. Uh-huh. So the first and second year, I think you take five, it's either five or six classes um, each, each semester and we'll have a cognitive assessment, um, uh, um, uh, comp exam and then a personality comp exam mm. um in in the first two semesters as well uh-huh. so it's pretty it was pretty intense and it was all over zoom for me because of covid uh-huh. uh which i think made the cognitive assessment course harder because uh-huh. it's you know it's hard to do like block design <laughs> um uh over zoom um but i think our professors, I think, especially the cognitive assessment professor, really, Dr. Sang, she put in a lot of work mm. to make it so that we didn't lose out. Um, mm. So I felt like I was trained really well there. Good. Um, but it was hard over Zoom because we didn't have the uh, we didn't have the the community. We didn't have our cohort get to bond in the 
suffering of all the classes that we were taking and the craziness. So we, you know, we had WhatsApp uh, channels and, you know, you got to know some people, talk to them privately, but it's, yeah, it was definitely like a little isolating mm. that, that year. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. The first year is that's when you're really, that's when, that's when you, solidify and, and you become cohesive and you you form relationships and stuff so man doing it over zoom that would have um yeah our first year it was our first semester we also had maybe five classes and one of them was intelligence testing where we learned iq testing and then our the next semester was personality where we learned like the mmpi and stuff like that and for each of those classes, we had a probe where it's basically you test out on the material, like a um, like a performance based. Yeah. Yeah. And if you get below a certain percentage, you have to you get one attempt to retake it. Right. And then if you fail again, then you have to repeat the course. Yeah. So those were like really stressful classes for a lot of people and um, a lot of people during those first two semesters, they're either like, I didn't understand that we were gonna have to do a lot of assessment. I didn't think that that's what this was gonna be about. And then they either drop out or they they fail out of those because they're not, some people are just, you know, I, I it seems like people who are more uh, research focused also tend to like testing more or assessment. Yeah. And so people who don't really have that type of mentality, I think, also don't do as well so that's always yeah they, they front load it and it almost like weeds out the yeah 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 one of one of the professors in the first semester apparently we didn't get this because they felt bad for us because uh. we were on zoom so they, they they tried to be extra nice to us but apparently one of the one of the professors at my program gives a speech every year about how at least like one or two people in the pro and in your cohort is going to fail mm. and be like kicked out of the program or leave because it's too much. Mm. So we, my cohort didn't get it because they felt, <laughs> they felt bad for us, but apparently in all the other years, uh, this particular professor gives that speech and it sounds, mm. sounds pretty scary. I'm happy I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't get this speech, but I remember because our cohorts are your, how, how many people were in your cohort? Um, there are, I think there are like 16 people in my cohort. Oh, that's yeah. pretty big for PhD, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I think we, we maybe average around 21, 22 people coming in to the first year each year. And, um, no professor talked to us about it, but we usually ask the cohorts above us and they would say, you're probably going to lose, you know, three, four, five people throughout the time. Um, and then for us in the summer, we had kind of, they call it like a boot camp training. Like we have a, a summer class that prepares us for here on campus. We have a psychological services center where, um, during you start the fall of your second year, that's like your first placement and you work at the psychological services center and you see, you do therapy and assessment for people in the community at a, like a discounted price right so in the summer at the end of the our first year in the summer you do training to prepare you for 
seeing clients for the first time. Um, so yeah, for us, it's the second, the beginning of the second year for that full year, you're at the psychological services center plus taking classes, but that's when you start seeing clients. Right. Yeah. Well, um, and for you, you said a lot of you guys at the end of your first year, like the, maybe the summer of your first year, you already start seeing people. Yeah. So a lot of us, so we, I know some PhD programs, they don't have you start your first externship or seeing patients until two years in, because I think they want you to be more focused on the research, but Hmm. my program, they, they start us really early. We, we start a practicum class our second semester and technically you can get assigned a patient in your second semester. I think maybe out of the 16 people in my cohort, only like three or four got someone assigned to them in their second semester of their first year. But by, but by July or August of um, like in between your first and second year, you get assigned three, three patients and you start your externship. uh, Usually. I mean, I started my externship in June um, between my first and second year. So I was, I had some clinical experience going in. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I worked at like, I worked at a psychiatric recovery clinic okay. for almost two years before I started my PhD program on top of my master's program and my full-time job. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to have some clinical work on my resume. So I was working maybe like, I don't know, five hours a week there. So it wasn't that much, but it was something. So I wasn't, I don't think I was that, um, nervous going in, but it still is pretty nerve wracking. You know, they kind of, you know, they just throw you, you um, you know, you sink or swim. (laughs) Um, I mean, we have like supervision and stuff, but, uh, yeah, that it's kind of, a. I think in a lot of programs in New York, regardless of PsyD PhD tend to start earlier if they're more clinical heavy. They just throw you in there. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if there's, I don't really know what, like, there's probably a calculus for, like, getting a certain number of clinical hours, and maybe they decide, well, we need our students to have X amount of clinical hours by the time they apply to intern, so we might as well start them early. I'm Uh not sure if it's that or if it's a philosophy thing. They just feel like you should just start. I yeah, I'm not sure why they do that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And is that on campus? Do you guys have like a psychological services center? Yeah. So our program, I think the coolest thing about our program is that we have a psychiatric outpatient clinic in the Bronx, oh. kind of like what you're saying. So um, at your program that serves the community around you uh-huh. um, and there's, I think it compared to some of my peers at externship who see a lot of undergraduates it's it's interesting because you really you know you see the types of patients that you would see um if you were working at you know just a general outpatient clinic in the community Uh or a like state hospital i mean people are never they they'll never give you someone that would require um inpatient treatment right away but we have a lot of i've had a few patients 
in our outpatient clinic that had been hospitalized previously. Mm -hmm. So the, I guess the patient population tends to be like riskier than some of my peers um, that I've talked to at my externship. Uh-huh. So I think, and a lot of, a lot of underlying personality disorder too, like way more than you would get the typical training clinic. Uh-huh. So it's, I'd say it can be hard and a little scary for people because you, you know, you start off pretty intensely, but I think it's, it really teaches you what, what this work is like. And, you know, especially in, in clinical psychology, you know, it, 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 it gives you an idea of what your job is going to be like. Mm. Yeah. 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 Similarly, we, um, we would basically our, our, our first session with a client, we would do like a diagnostic interview and find out what they're coming in for. And then we would, um, send over an email or a note to our supervisor. And then they would say whether or not we can accept them based on, yeah. yeah, Um, based on our level of training or experience. And, um, but there were even, even with that process, there was still a lot of, a lot of, uh, maybe severe cases that, that came through, um, during our time. So that was, yeah. And it is kind of like, oh, okay, so this is here, here we go. Like here, here we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so that for our whole second year, that was our, I forget how many hours we had to have, but we had to have a certain amount of therapy hours. And then we had to have, I think three different assessment clients that we did a full battery on. Um, so for your guys' second year, did did you stay at that at that center or did you guys have an external practical site? So we in our second year in my program, we do concurrent the outpatient clinic at our university and an external site. Oh. So that that second year is the hardest year in our program by far because oh. you take two to three classes each semester. You have three to four patients in the outpatient clinic that's associated with their university. And then you have the external practicum site. So you end up getting typically somewhere between like, I think on paper, you're supposed to only have 20 hours a week, but it kind of, you know, sometimes maybe it evens out at the end, but Mm. I've had weeks in my ship where I'm working more like 24 hours. Um, And then there are some weeks where it's slower. So there are times where I was almost not quite full time, but working a little bit more than half time and then also doing my research and also doing class and, mm. and, and like comprehensive exams. Uh, uh, it's just, yeah, it's a very hard year and I'm happy to be through it. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think similarly, I think, um, during our second, our second and third year, it's been, uh, 16 to 20 hours a week is our kind of contract. Um, so yeah, it sounds similar there. That what is, uh, what was your external site? Where did you, where did you get experience at? Yeah, I was at the rehabilitation Institute, which is, and I was working on a brain injury unit there. So yeah, so I was doing about, well, I'm actually still there, but I'm doing 
neuropsych testing and then 50% psychotherapy. Oh. So the neuropsych testing, it's pretty brief. It's the testing's like an hour and a half because the patients typically have pretty severe brain injuries. They can't mm. really, they can't sit through like a eight hour <laughs> thing. So with hour and a half testing to basically help with treatment planning for their outpatient treatment, sort of help the OTs and speech therapists develop, like figure out what they should be working on when they're out in the community doing the follow-up outpatient treatment. And then the psychotherapy, I do a bit of bedside psychotherapy. So I'll meet with a patient for 30 minutes, depending on what's going on. Mm. And then I do some outpatient psychotherapy in our outpatient clinic at Kessler as well. So that's just like traditional psychotherapy. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting site. Yeah, it sounds, that does sound very interesting. The And I'm surprised, I didn't think you guys, it's it's interesting to learn how much experience you guys get with, with therapy and like being 50-50 at the site. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised to hear that. It's not, I, I, I'm not sure that all rehab sites are like that. Um, hmm. I think it's, I'm hoping it's changing because it really is important. It's the one's mental health really has big determinants on how on your, like on your functional outcome, Uh especially because there are sometimes are changes in personality where maybe personality hasn't changed per se, but like maybe some of the worst parts of someone's personality gets amplified. Hmm they have a stroke or a TBI and then they have conflicts with family members. They have a lot of self-esteem issues. Mm. So it's, it's really, I think it's very helpful for people, but because people that are recovering from brain injuries are already meeting many providers, I think a lot of sites just don't prioritize it, Uh which is a shame because I think that it, is an area of treatment that I think clinical psychologists are particularly able to help in because we do have the assessment training. We do, I mean, we're, we're not biologically trained, but we have a little bit of the biological training as well. Yeah. Uh, And we're, we're the ones getting exposed to that. I, I don't, I mean, I could be totally off base here, but it's my understanding that most social workers and most mental health uh, counseling people don't get the chance to work with people from this population or it's not as common Mm -hmm. or maybe they're working in like more of a case manager role and not a psychotherapist role. Uh So I feel like it's an area that could really use more people, but it's a, I think it's a different, it, it can feel different because the people are, uh, they're not as high functioning. Or, I mean, that's not true across the board, but a lot of people are not as high functioning as your typical outpatient uh, person or yeah. even inpatient patient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's something I have never really considered and I've never worked with that population. I, I recently spoke with a clinical psychologist who's working at a rehab facility in Florida and she, she that was only a maybe a month ago and she was very informative and i was just i'm i'm still amazed 
as I talk with more and more people about how many different roles a clinical psychologist can have and thinking about not just, like you said, not just doing neural, you know, neuropsychological testing, but then all of the, all of the implications that come with that type of an injury or that type of a, of a disorder and how that's going to impact you and your lifestyle and your family and how mental health has an impact on, on your physical health and just, yeah. So that's so cool. Good. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good experience. Um, um, when is it that you, and you, you mentioned you're already starting to do, are you starting to already do research for your dissertation as well? Yeah. So I have all the data for my dissertation collected from a clinical trial that like, a phase of a clinical trial that already uh, was completed. Okay. And so I have the data, but I'm also working on the next phase of the clinical trial. So although I'm not going to use that data for my dissertation, it's the same, it's the same uh, procedures, the same, the same uh, treatments essentially. Uh So the, and the hope is, so right now we're in, I think the first funding was pilot funding. Mm-hmm. So the sample size is fairly small. I think it was maybe around 30 people. Mm-hmm. And now uh, we're hoping to get a larger sample size, hopefully around a hundred. And if the effect size, this particular intervention we're trying to uh, tailor is successful, then we'll get, we'll get more funding for an even, an even uh, bigger trial. And, you know, at that point, if it works out, then it might end up being something that people use to uh, treat schizophrenia. But <sighs> it's, it's very much in the beginning phases and it's very exploratory and, uh, you know, I think, I think it has a good shot, but you never know with these things. Yeah, yeah. Can you go in and uh, tell anyone who's listening what, what your dissertation is on? Sure, yeah. So as I was saying earlier, my supervisor's is a visual neuroscientist and he's been working on this visual remediation study up at it's so right now it's at university of rochester medical and uh, cornell west and essentially what they're doing is there are a bunch of brain uh, i'll call them brains but they're not it's not like the brain games that you download on <laughs> In the Apple store, the games are very boring. Like these are not games that you would want to download for fun, (laughs) where you have to basically discriminate uh, certain stimuli in your visual field on the computer screen. Hmm. And they do these trainings over, you know, the course of, uh, I think it's over the course of like 12 weeks or so or longer. And we are also uh, collecting cognitive data at the same time. And essentially what we're trying to do is we believe that there are certain pathways in the brain that are connected to vision that are not functioning properly for people with psychotic disorders. Mm. Uh, What we believe is that people with psychotic disorders have um, deficits in gain control in their brain, which means that they're either, they're, they're either not, filtering out enough information and they're being overstimulated Hmm. 
or the opposite where they're getting so little information that they're almost in a uh almost in a state that you would be in when you're on like similar to like being on ketamine or something where um uh you're like dissociating to the point where like there's so little stimulation that you have to like confabulate or attribute things from your mind to what's going on in the world and, and it's all connected to the visual system and mm. this visual training that we're doing uh our pilot data showed that it had a fairly significant effect in strengthening those those pathways we've also our collaborator out in um i think he's in uc riverside or something uh, he has done this training with people in a healthy population. He actually, he actually did it with uh, a group of baseball players, and and they found that um, their 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 ability to hit the ball was was improved after mm -hmm. doing these these visual trainings. So we have some evidence from other populations that this is a significant effect, but we haven't really tried it with people with psychotic disorders. And the hope is that if we can strengthen these pathways, we can improve some of the negative and cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia, which our current medications don't really target. Right now, they only target the positive symptoms for the most part, except for maybe clozapine. But um, you know, most of them are all about the, the hallucinations. Um, they don't really even get at the delusions. So we're hoping that our treatment will improve some of those areas that are affected by schizophrenia that current biological techniques can't help with. So hmm. could help with like, you know, social cognition, stuff like, you know, stuff like that, uh, processing speed, all, all types of things. It's very much in the early stages. It could end up being a dud, but it's, it's, there's some promising data yeah it's very very interesting yeah. i was just talking with my wife i think yesterday about um because when you mentioned when you mentioned it could be too little information um and so they're trying to fill like they're trying to fill in what what's missing yeah we were talking about dissociation and um and how your brain even even visually you have a blind spot but your brain fills in what should be there yeah and uh so yeah that's just that's fascinating yeah fascinating. i mean we're all we all kind of our brains do this like we're not actually seeing the information that's coming in our brain will like if you stare at a really bright light the gain control in your brain will pre basically prevent you from seeing all like all of that data all of that data would be overwhelming to your mm -hmm. system um so like it's not a one-to-one -one thing and the interesting this is actually the thing that really got me excited about joining my supervisor's lab i read this article shortly before i interviewed with him for for the phd program about how there is a single case of congenital of someone with congenital blindness later developing schizophrenia there's not a single case in history of someone who has been blind later becoming schizophrenic or or psychotic huh. which is like 
completely mind blowing to me and tells you that there's something with the visual system um, or the lack of you using the visual system in the way that it was, uh, you know, traditionally meant to be used uh -huh. that is, um, you know, contributing to psychotic disorders. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's really cool. And yeah. I hope to like maybe get involved with like looking at that a little bit more, but it's yeah. really, it's like very, very, very interesting to me. Yeah. Fascinating. That sounds like a great line of research you've come across. That's cool. Um, I'm excited to read some of your articles one day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't, don't hold your breath. It takes so long, <laughs> it takes so long to write these are it's, it's insane. It's just, yeah. it's wild. The amount of work that goes into mm. stuff, but hold, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll send you the article once, uh, or <laughs> some of the articles once, once they uh, come out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to, I forgot. I was going to ask about when it comes to you guys choosing external practica sites, like the rehab center that you're at, do you have a pretty long list or a pretty, like a pretty good variety of different places that you can apply to, mm -hmm. or is it kind of scarce or do you, yeah. So in the New York area, I think there's a paradox of choice because <laughs> we are like the psychiatric capital of America, <laughs> maybe the world, I don't know. <laughs> um, so there are so many options, but they're not all good options. And mm. some sites won't take people from my, my program because we're, we're, we're pri primarily CBT and then other programs won't take people from the psychoanalytic programs because <laughs> They don't want psychoanalytic people. Um, there are some sites that just have bad, bad reputations and our clinical supervisor is like, no, <laughs> I will not let you go there. You're like, you're not allowed to go there. So <laughs> I think that when you whittle that down, it's still probably more than the average P, uh, PhD or PsyD student around the mm -hmm. country, but it's not like I can apply to everything there. So that are huge no-nos, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for us, I think probably around 12 sites that we can choose from. And there's like two inpatient psychiatric hospitals. There's another short-term um, psychiatric hospital. There's some private practices. Yeah. And maybe two or three neural psych testing sites. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you, where are you heading this next, next year, upcoming year? Yeah, I'm going to Cornell Westchester. I was actually just up there getting my medical clearance, but I'm I'm working on the psychotic disorders unit there, um, and I'm also doing some of the research that I was talking about. Wow. Uh, so, the I think the typical the average stay of a patient on the unit is like I think only maybe two to three weeks. Oh. Um, so it's fairly brief. And I think also there's also, there's also a partial hospitalization program that we are involved in as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely briefer and we do a combination. I'll be doing a lot of neuropsych testing and I'll be doing some group therapy, brief psychotherapy. I'll be doing, um, and the, the uh the orientations of the people there are very eclectic there are some people like 
like Michael Garrett, who oh. you interviewed, uh, yeah. who I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but in years past, he ran a group, uh, a group supervision uh, uh, group at that site. So I'm really hoping he's there. Yeah, that would be awesome. Sorry, I got... Oh, you're good. New York City. <laughs> um, just wait. Uh, yeah, so I'm hoping he's still there because he... Uh, I actually listened to that podcast twice because he's... Oh. He's really, um, he's got a lot of wisdom to offer. Yeah. Not to yeah. read his book. So I, you know, I, I would be really excited to, to learn from him. Mm. Um, but there's also, we also do a lot of social skills training, which is a big thing for people with schizophrenia. Uh, there is, um, there's some cognitive remediation therapy as well, which, um, you know, I feel like the social skills training and the cognitive remediation therapy probably go hand in hand, but mm. we'll see. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. What is what is cognitive remediation therapy? So, cognitive remediation therapy is you. It's it can be done actually by speech therapists or or psychologists. Mm. Basically, what you do is you you do certain like training, certain games that are supposed to improve your cognition and your problem solving skills. So, uh, an example of what you would do is like, okay, so you're standing with the patient in front of a shelf, and you're trying to stimulate a work environment, and you say, okay, we need you know, we need uh, to get all the materials we need to write, um, take notes in a meeting. Uh, what, what do you need? And on, on the shelf, you'll have a notebook, some pens, some pencils, some things that you don't need. And you'll do things like, you know, you'll have them pick out the things they need. Um, you'll, you'll talk to them and do some training on you know how to handle difficulties with memory so a lot of people with brain injuries and also people with schizophrenia have difficulties with verbal memory so you'll teach them uh compensatory skills to manage some of those deficits so Mm. a big thing that they do is calendar training they teach them how to keep a calendar um when to refer to the calendar uh, teaching them to remember to to remember stuff like that i've never actually done it so i might be uh either i might be getting some of the bits and pieces wrong Uh but that's like the general gist of it Uh um i think there's a little bit of controversy in the field about whether or not it actually helps or like if it actually translates do like general skills. Some yeah. people, I think there are some people in the research that say that you're basically teaching people to be good at that particular task. You're, mm. and those skills aren't necessarily transferring to the world. Uh-huh. But I think there's probably an equal amount of people with data showing the opposite. So yeah. I'm not really sure what what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> but, uh, it is something that some of my patients at Kessler anecdotally have benefited from 
Okay. So, you know, I think it's a worthy endeavor. I'm not yeah. sure. I, I imagine people with schizophrenia, it is a little bit different, but, you know, schizophrenia, as you get older, very much looks like a neurocognitive disorder more than a, like a pure psychiatric disorder. Mm. So I imagine that some of the cognitive decline will look somewhat like the cognitive decline you would see from someone who had like, you know, a pretty serious stroke or someone who was in a really bad car accident had a TBI. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what it's going to look like yet. Yeah. Yeah. But regardless, it sounds like, again, you're going to get a lot of really good experience there. The, the place I'm heading to is also, it's, um, maybe about a week, like two weeks stay for, for psychiatric patients, either coming in because they were suicidal and they had to be kept, um, or because they have been in some type of a drug related incident or overdosed or something like that. Um, and they, they, they have psychiatrists on site, but us PsyD students go in uh, like three times a week and we just, we do therapy sessions with them. Um, and then we're going to get some experience with group therapy as well. And I think there's even some cases where we get to, we can go to court and kind of observe yeah, the forensic side of things. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then after this year, this would be your third year. And then for your, for your fourth year, is that, is that basically going on internship? What is, what is fourth year? Fourth year, I'll do my, my last externship and I'll oh. basically be writing my dissertation. Okay. Theoretically, I could, I'm actually going to be done with classes after my third year. So theoretically, I could apply to internship, but I care too much about my research to do that. Like I really need to, like, I really want to get a lot of my research published. I want to finish my dissertation before I start internship Mm. because it seems not fun to be on your dissertation while on internship. So basically going to spend that year doing the next externship that I get wherever that will be and uh, writing my dissertation. Yeah, similar here. It's uh, I think a, a pretty good majority of people finish their dissertation either on internship, probably while they're on internship. But the way we're trying to get it done uh, is, I would like to defend before I go on internship, if possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems much. Uh, it seems much better for your sanity. Yeah. <laughs> having like two jobs at once. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, so that's it's interesting. I I've, I've enjoyed this because um yeah I have I had no idea other than before this conversation my impression of a PhD program was just more it was just my I had just a word would pop into my head and it's like research you know and that's about it so and it could be you know if you're talking to someone from Stony Brook or another clinical science program I think maybe it would look a lot like that but hmm. my program is I think most science scientist practitioner programs are somewhat like like mine they try to at least make it close to equivalent between research and and clinical yeah that's good that's cool where do you uh where do you see yourself kind of heading either yeah maybe like after internship where do you yeah you know i'm not 100 percent certain i 
don't think that me and my wife are going to stay in the New York area. We'll probably leave. I think it depends on how much I like research. Wow. You know, I'm hoping that either way, if the project that I'm on is successful, I'll be able to like bring it with me or be able to start up like another arm of it elsewhere. Uh-huh. But I'm not, I'm not certain that I'll be able to do that and whether or not I'll have the patience for research. I mean, <laughs> I have the patience now, but there are times where I'm, you know, I'm like, I, I clinical work. Why, like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see, uh, we'll see if my patience wears thin uh, <laughs> in a few years, but I, either way, I definitely want to be doing a lot of clinical work, even if I do, like, even if research stays in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think I want to work with severe mental illness. I mean, I really like working on the brain injury unit. It's not quite severe mental illness, although I've had a lot of patients with morbid uh, uh, problems like schizophrenia or past suicide history, personality disorder. So I think I want to continue working with severe mental illness. I also feel like for my last externship, I want to try to do a forensic site with people who have severe mental illness. So I'm interested in maybe getting one of the externships at the various prisons slash jails in, in the New York area. So that, you know, that might be something I'll try out. So I'm not a hundred percent besides the fact that I think I want to do severe mental illness and I you know, I like, I like being in a position where I could be curious all the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a preference over, uh, either assessment or therapy? Definitely have a preference for therapy. Although Mm. I do really like assessment. I, I think my issue assessment is that you sometimes, you know, you write the report, you find something out about someone and then you don't see what happens after that. Like, and then you send them off into the world and sometimes (laughs) you're able, sometimes the assessment can be really therapeutic and you can see the change that you've made in someone's life just by Uh doing the assessment. But I Uh feel like I've probably done close to 50 neuropsych assessments at this point and probably only like, 10% 10% of them that that was the case, if not less. Yeah. And there's just something about the, that, that long relationship where you see someone change, even, even the brief psychotherapy, you know, if you're seeing someone like six times over a two week stay, uh-huh. you can see a little bit of change and that's what I really like. So I think the assessment's important because we're the only ones that do assessment. Psychiatrists don't do it. Yeah, workers don't do it. And I think it's like a really valuable thing to know. And it makes us it makes us special. But I, I, I I would never want to be a neuropsychologist. It's very, it's, it's a hard road. (laughs) road. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people in my program, I'd say almost half the people in my program want to be neuropsychologists. Oh, really? Yeah. I know it's a kind of a big up and coming, exciting thing for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's cool too, and not that they make like huge bucks, but they do make a lot of money. Uh, 
to other other people in the mental health field. So if you, I don't know, if that's important to you that, you know, that that field is fairly lucrative and mm. also really interesting. It's just, I just think that um, I like that long, that long-term, long-term relationship and uh-huh. uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Okay. Um, I think that's about our time. Um, I want to thank you again for, for joining me. It's been, it's been a pleasure and an honor. So think, thanks for having this conversation. Oh, thanks for having me on. Um, I hope, I hope this was interesting for, for you and your viewers. (laughs) I'm sure it will be. And it was for me. Okay. All right.